Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our session uh, at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, We Are the Gods Now. I'm Anne Mossett from the Sydney Opera House. I'm one of the curators of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Um, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon to hear from Jason Silver. When we were planning the festival, we really wanted to talk about the future and the impact of technology on the future. And because of our experience trying to talk about um, scientific topics, pessimistic topics, difficult topics, we decided we really needed to find somebody about the future who could talk about the future of technology in a way that was optimistic and exciting and that was going to get people to think about this, these kind of very complicated and sometimes difficult issues uh, with a positive um, undertone to what they were saying. And we were absolutely um, very so excited when we came across the work of Jason Silver. And a, a few weeks after we talked to Jason and started to arrange for him to come, we found out that he was speaking at TED. And I was fortunate to see him speak there, introducing a video he had made um, for that conference. Um, and I thought, yes, this is something that's going to be really wonderful to see in the, here in the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Jason is um, someone who's hard to categorise. He's not someone where I can say, oh yes, he's the author of XYZ and he's a professor here and there. Jason is a philosopher, a filmmaker, um, a visionary, I think, someone who above all is a really extraordinary communicator about science, about complexity and about the future. So I'm delighted that he's here to talk to us this afternoon. Please make sure that your phones are on silence on silent. Um, tweet to hashtag FODI, which has been hacked because so many of you were getting so involved in the conversation that it became a magnet to uh, a lot of people trying to get you to buy something else. But we're fixing that and, uh, and Twitter is still going through, so don't, don't hold back. Jason is going to talk to us for about um, half an hour, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Um, and then there'll be plenty of time for questions and discussion from you because I think this is something where you will get uh, a lot of provocative ideas. So the opportunity to have a conversation with Jason today is going to be one of the great pleasures of this session. So please join me in welcoming Jason Silver. Wow. Hi, everybody. How are you guys doing? hope you guys are doing great. We are the gods now. What a topic, huh? And I suppose, for me, the big inspiration behind this uh, came after I read Ernest Becker's book, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, from 1974. Pop culture reference for that book. It's the book that Woody Allen gives Annie Hall in the movie Annie Hall, and he says, look, you need to read this so you can understand where I'm coming from. And basically, The Denial of Death said that the human condition is characterized, characterized uniquely by our awareness of our mortality. In other words, we're the only species that is aware that we are mortal beings, and this causes a tremendous amount of anxiety. We would go mad if we hadn't come up with solutions to the death problem. And throughout history, uh, you know, Ernest Becker identifies three main solutions to the problem of death. The first one was the religious solution to the problem of death. You create a narrative in which you will, your soul will live forever in the kingdom of God, and it gets rid of the death issue because everything will be taken care of in the end. Now, as technology has increasingly, science and technology increasingly made religion sort of 
more difficult to uh, believe, we've had to come up with other solutions to the death problem. The second main solution to the problem of death that Ernest Becker identifies is the romantic solution. You turn your lovers into deities. She's like the wind. She's my salvation. It's the lyric to every pop song. She is the sun. But of course, no relationship can ultimately bear the burden of godhood. Eventually, your gods reveal their clay feet. And all of a sudden, we can't be saved by our lovers, and the anxiety about our mortal coil kicks in again. Ernest Becker says we are gods with anuses. We have this capacity to ponder the infinite. We're seemingly capable of anything. We can mainline the whole of time through the optic nerve with our astronomy and with our space telescopes. And yet, we're housed in these heart-pumping, breath-gasping, decaying bodies. So to be godly yet creaturely is just impossibly cruel. Uh, The last solution to the problem of death that Ernest Becker identifies, he calls the creative solution. And I think this is perhaps the most interesting one for a variety of reasons. Of course, symbolically, the creative solution allows us to create great works of art, to create work that will outlive us and that will outlast us to leave a sort of symbolic immortality and a legacy of that sort. But also the creative solution to the problem of death, I think, is the engineering solution. It's the way through which we remake the world. It's the way in which we transcend our limitations using science and technology. And this gets me really excited because this is ultimately how I see technology. Technology is a scaffolding. Andy Clark, the cognitive philosopher, technology is our second skin. Terence McKenna says it's the real skin of our species. Through technology, we transcend the limitations of thought, reach, and vision. We extend ourselves. We transcend time, space, and distance. Technology is, is our extended phenotype, as Dawkins says. It's really what we are. Our skyscrapers, our jet engines, that's us. Just like the termite colony is temperature controlled and it's a part of the termite species, so too technology is a part of who we are. Now, as Anne said, I'm a filmmaker, and uh, my background is I worked in television. I worked for Al Gore's TV network for a number of years, and I fell in love with the power of short-form filmmaking. I felt that uh, with short-form, you could create content that could spread, that could be shared in the age of social media. And when I left Current TV, I decided to create a series of short films, micro-documentaries, that look at the co-evolution of humans and technology because I fell so in love with this idea of technology as a means to transcend our boundaries that I felt like this was a narrative that needed to be put out there in the world because we live in this world of doom and gloom. We live in a media environment where if it bleeds, it leads. And there's a reason for that. My friend Peter Diamandis, founder of the XPRIZE and Singularity University, uh, wrote a book called Abundance, Why the Future Will Be Much Better Than You Think. And in the book, he talks about how we have these overactive amygdalas that we've inherited from a time where we used to live in the savannas of Africa, and it was biologically advantageous for us to be really nervous all the time and always looking for danger, right? Because it kept us alive against the tiger, you know, so that the tiger wouldn't eat us. And we've inherited that. But now we live in a world that is increasingly safer, increasingly less violent. I don't know if you guys know the work of Steven Pinker, who says that the chances of a man dying at the hands of another man today are the lowest than they've ever been. Or the work of Matt Ridley, who actually shows the inexorable progress that we've made using science and technology and how the world has actually never been better. Or the work of Hans Robling, who has the website gapminder.org, 
Org that went viral a couple of years ago because it showed how every nation in the world, by every measurable indicator, has been rising. Quality of life has been rising over the last 200 years. But we don't notice this because we have these overactive amygdalas that are just looking for danger. And our increasingly wired world is more than happy to showcase all the danger, even though it's less than there's ever been before. Anyway, I promise to go slow. So I decided that there was room, there was room to start a new conversation about how we see ourselves and how we see technology. And I felt that online video had become ubiquitous enough that we could actually create content that was short form, that was infectious, and that people could then spread. And so I started to do this, and I created a project, a series of shorts. I call them Shots of Philosophical Espresso. And the point of the content is to pull you out of context in such a dramatic manner in order to force you to gawk in amazement at the ubiquitous everyday wonders that we seem to be culturally disposed to ignore. Okay? So what I'd like to do today is actually want to show you, walk you through a series of these short films, which will hopefully convince you that we are on our way becoming gods. The first film I want to show you is actually an ode to the power of ideas, and let's play it, and then we'll talk a little bit about the themes. You know, I love this idea of radical openness, the free exchange of information, the free flow of ideas, creating spaces in which ideas can have sex, as Matt Ridley talks about. And this is huge, because it turns out that ideas are just as real as the neurons they inhabit, as James Glick tells us. You know, a new kingdom rises above the biosphere. Denizens of this kingdom are ideas, because ideas have retained some of the properties of organisms, it turns out. They leap from brain to brain. They compete for the limited resources of our attention. They have infectivity. They have spreading power. They are what Richard Dawkins calls the new replicators, born from the primordial soup of human culture. Their vector of transmission is language and electronic communication. Though ideas are not made of nucleic acid, they have achieved more evolutionary change and at a rate that leaves the old gene panting far behind. You know, Ray Kurzweil says our ability to create virtual models in our heads, combined with our modest-looking thumbs, was sufficient to usher in a secondary force of evolution called technology, and it will continue until the entire universe is at our fingertips. This is unbelievable stuff. It speaks to the telescoping nature of evolutionary change. More change in the last hundred years than in the last billion years. Terence McKenna actually wrote that from the moment that human beings invented language, biological evolution essentially ceased and evolution became a cultural epigenetic phenomenon. Now, we take in matter of low organization, we put it through our mental filters, and we extrude it in the form of space shuttles and iPhones. You know, the imaginary foundation tells us that what imagination does is it allows us to conceive of delightful future possibilities, pick the most amazing one, and pull the present forward to meet it. You know, imagine how impoverished this world would have been if we hadn't invented the technology of the oil painting in time for Van Gogh, or the technology of the musical instrument in time for Beethoven and Mozart to unfurl through it, you know, with the revolutions in biotechnology and nanotechnology, the free exchange of information is allowing us to conceive of radical new things. Freeman Dyson says, in the future, new generation of artists will be writing genomes with the fluency that Blake and Byron wrote verses. What is great in man, said Nietzsche, is that he is a bridge and not an end. You know, we're on a trajectory, smack in the middle between the born and the made, wrote Kevin Kelly. And so, radical openness, it's huge. It's a universe of possibility. It's gray infused by color. It's the invisible revealed. It's the mundane blown away by awe. We need to cultivate radical openness as a way of participating and accelerating evolution. Wow. 
Wow, indeed. Thank you. Is that loud enough? Yeah? You know, people often ask me, why video? Why art? You know, at the end of the day, I'm not a technologist. I'm not a scientist, even though the message I'm putting out there is that increasingly a group, a small group of passionate people, a small group of passionate technologists can do what only huge corporations and governments could do mere decades ago. And this is happening on the back of these exponentially growing technologies. And I'm going to get into that. But I'd like to share with you a line by Marshall McLuhan, which I think really sums up why I use short-form video to kind of infect people with awe. And he says, It's always been the artist who perceives the alterations in man caused by a new medium, who recognizes that the future is the present, and who uses his work to prepare the grounds for it. Now, one of the things that that video obviously talks about is the power of ideas to transform the world. You heard me say that even though ideas, even though memes are not made of nucleic acid, they still have achieved more evolutionary change, more change than biological evolution ever did. And in order to understand this, you have to, happen, you have to understand that this change is happening on the back of these exponentially emerging technologies. Now, exponential growth is counterintuitive to the way our brains perceive the world. See, our brains evolved in a world that was linear and local, but we now live in a world that is global and exponential. Essentially, we have obsolete brains. Our brains cannot make sense of this rate of change, so we really need to educate each other. My friend Ray Kurzweil, who's a world-famous futurist and has, has an amazing track record at predicting these exponential changes, he uses a famous example. It's really simple, but I think it's important that people take it in in order to understand what makes this kind of radical change possible. And he says, take 30 steps. If you take 30 steps linearly, you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 30 steps later, you get to 30. That's pretty simple. That's how our brains make extrapolations about distance and about what's coming and about the future. Now, if you take those same 30 steps, but you take them exponentially, you would go 2, 4, 8, 16, 30 steps later, you'd be at a billion. That's the difference between linear growth versus exponential growth. 30 steps, 1 to 30, 30 steps, 1 to a billion. And that accounts for the reason that the cell phone in one's pocket today, the average smartphone, is a million times cheaper, a million times smaller, and a thousand times more powerful than a supercomputer that was 60 million bucks, half a building in size, 40 years ago. So what used to be half a building now fits in your pocket. So the tools to change the world are in everybody's hands. The supercomputers of yesteryear are in everybody's hands. A young person with a cell phone in Africa today has better communications technology than the U.S. president had 25 years ago. This is also out of Peter Diamandis' book, Abundance. So consider what that means. So it used to be half a building, now it fits in your pocket. In 25 years, it'll be the size of a blood cell. It'll be reverse engineering us from inside. Computers trillions of times more powerful than the ones we have today will be inside of our bodies. You talk about the co-evolution of humans and technology, people think technology is this separate artificial thing. It's in symbiosis. It's a who and what we are. It's a part of who and what we are. And eventually, we're going to close the loop because the technology is going to go inside of us. I'm very excited about the three overlapping revolutions we're seeing. Obviously, information technology, piggybacking on Moore's law. The computers get faster every two years, twice as powerful, half the size, et cetera, et cetera. They're shrinking. Then we also have biotechnology. Biotechnology means mastering the information processes of biology, understanding that our, bio that our biology is software. 
and that that software can be upgraded. Just like we upgrade our iOS on our iPhone, we're going to be able to upgrade our biological software. The famed futurist Juan Enriquez says, you know why this gets really exciting? Because when you can master the information processes of biology, you have software that can write its own hardware. Computers could never do that, but biology can. We had the world's first artificial organism created a few years ago by Craig Venter. Man creates life. Man becomes God. Alan Harrington wrote a book called The Immortalist, where he says, death has become an imposition on the human race and is no longer acceptable. And any philosophy that accepts death must itself be considered dead. Its questions meaningless. Its consolations worn out. Perhaps these technologies are our rehearsal. Perhaps by reverse engineering life, we have decommissioned natural selection, as Edward O. Wilson says. And now we get to look deep within ourselves and decide what we wish to become. Evolution has woken up. Evolution has evolved its own evolvability. As Kevin Kelly said in that video, we're on a trajectory smack in the middle between the born and the made. Man is a bridge and not an end. The other revolution we're seeing is in artificial intelligence. We create non-biological intelligence, sentience that is not limited by the inherent limitations of biology, digital minds that can be endlessly upgraded. And people worry about it, right? They think the Terminator scenario because they're like, oh, those things are going to take over. But those things are us. They're us. The cognitive philosopher Andy Clark says we need to get over our skin bag bias, which is this assumption that's only what, what is within our tissue that is natural and that what we create is somehow unnatural. But that's not true. Technology is an outgrowth of the human mind. Technology is imagination made manifest. Technology is psychedelic. The word psychedelic means mind manifesting. Terence McKenna says we live inside of condensations of our imagination, and we really do. Somebody dreamed of flight. Now we fly in aircrafts all over the world. With our smartphones, devices made of plastic and metal, we punch a few buttons and we send our thoughts through time and space, transcending time, space, distance. We're gods. Another thing that's often talked about in this next video I'm going to show you is this idea of mind over matter, because obviously this is used in New Age bumper stickers, oh, mind over matter, our thoughts can change the world, but I'm interested in more concrete examples of how imagination can transform the world. And I love the writer David Deutsch. His book, The Beginning of Infinity, really turned me on, because uh, he's just totally out there with his examples of mind over matter. So I decided to create a video that is demonstrative of just how our thoughts can spill over, terraform, and transform the planet, and maybe the universe. Next video, please. Reminded of Rich Doyle's line from Darwin's Pharmacy. He says, Dreams do not lack reality. They are real patterns of information. Working with the Imaginary Foundation says that the role of human imagination is to conceive of all these delightful futures, choose the most amazing, exciting, and ecstatic possibility, and then pull the present forward to meet it. That is what we do. We, we bring our imaginings into existence. But I think that as technology has advanced, found ways to outsource our mental capacities to our tools so much more. Our ability to manipulate the physical world has increased in an exponential fashion, so we've been able to shrink the lag time 
between our imaginings and their instantiation in the real world. David Deutsch speaks in his new book, The Beginning of Infinity. He says, if you look at the topography of the island of Manhattan today, that topography is a topography in which the forces of economics and culture and human intent have trumped the forces of geology. I mean, the topography of Manhattan today is no longer shaped by mere geology. It's shaped by the human mind and by economics and by culture. So what David Deutsch extrapolates is that ultimately that would be the fate of the whole universe. He says gravitation and antimatter might only shape the universe at its earliest and least interesting stages, but eventually the whole entire thing will be subject to the intent of substrate independent infinitely more powerful minds and to conceive of that just it makes me feel ecstatic that's true you know thank you thank you i do feel ecstatic when i contemplate these possibilities just reveling in those possibilities gets me off i have a mindgasm literally <laughs> And I started to create these videos. A part of me is just because I'm a control freak, right? I'm profoundly haunted by the impermanence of life and by the impermanence of inspiration. Inspiration is a profoundly fleeting and profoundly lonely experience. And I think the goal of any artist, whether it be in paint or in song or in cinema, is an attempt to put people in one's head, to invite us to smash our sense of separateness and to say, This is how the dots connected inside of my consciousness. I hope that I can communicate that to you, and I hope that you can understand that. I'd like to share with you a quote by Alain de Botton, one of my favorite philosophers out of the UK. And he says, and this has to do with the power of art to communicate, to make people feel something, as compared to, let's say, journalism. <sighs> So he says, the artist is willing to sacrifice a naive realism in order to achieve realism of a deeper sort, like a poet who, though less factual than a journalist in describing an event, may nevertheless reveal truths about it that find no place in the other's literal grid. I'm trying to get into the implications of what's happening on the back of these exponentially emerging technologies. When we reverse engineer life itself, when biology becomes the new canvas for our aesthetic design, what new forms of genius might come out of that? As Kevin Kelly said in my first video, right? How impoverished would this world, world, world have been were it not for the invention or the technology of the oil painting allowing Van Gogh to unfurl through it? What new genius will come out with inventions we cannot even conceive of yet? And people worry about disruptive technologies. They worry about their jobs. Half the jobs that exist today didn't exist 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Most of the jobs that are going to exist 20 years from now don't exist today. What new forms of artistry, what new forms of human expression, what new occupations and vocations will emerge out of these tools and our ongoing co-evolution with these tools? And what I love about using cinema to convey these ideas was probably described best by George sorry, Gene Youngblood, in his book Expanded Cinema. He said that cinema, like life itself, is a process of becoming, a part of man's ongoing historical drive to manifest his consciousness outside of his mind.
in front of his eyes. Now, something perhaps a little more practical that we talk about on the back of these technologies is the issue of big data and privacy and companies and corporations and governments knowing more and more of our behavior and being able to take everything we do and turn it into an algorithm that can maybe predict what we'll want before we know we want it. And I was quoted yesterday in a panel and that I think things like targeted advertisement or just engineered serendipity, it doesn't actually concern me. I'm more about the idea of radical openness. And when I think of big data, I actually get excited by the new forms of self-insight that might emerge from that. I read recently an article that said that apparently when forager ants hunt for food, the patterns of how they do that mirror the TCP IP protocols that control information flow on the Internet. What? I went to an exhibit at the MoMA in New York called Talk to Me, where they showed me this graphic animation that showed the world, and there was these things that looked like weather patterns flowing on it. And they were like, no, that's actually the diaspora of people leaving conflict zones. It looked like weather patterns. And I think what we're finding is that the more we can measure in the Internet of Things, walking around with computers in our pockets that are measuring what we like, what we buy, where we go, what we search for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, When mapped out, when we get the long view, when we get the big picture, what we're seeing is these patterns keep recurring. From the nano to the galactic, from the organic to the man-made, we're realizing it's all part of a continuum, and all of it is nature unfolding. It's complexity unfolding. It's just unfolding in different scales and in different realms. But we are of nature. We feel like autonomous, free agents going around our lives, but then the patterns that work in in, in the organic world, work in the man-made world. You know, I heard Stephen Johnson, who wrote his book, Where Good Ideas Come From, A Natural History of Innovation. He has a lot of great examples of how he calls the coral reef the city of the sea, because it turns out that the patterns of biological innovation in the coral reef that make it the most biologically diverse environment in the ocean mirror the patterns of innovation of cities, which are where the most memes are created. It has to do with the diversity and the collision of ideas and the amount of idea sex that's happening in cities as comparable to coral reefs. So what does this tell us? If we want to innovate more, we need to create these spaces in which ideas can have sex. We need to promote this free flow of information. We need to promote transparency so that we can gain more and more self-insight into how we work. And so I decided to make a video about this. This is my homage to big data. And I call it, It was inspired by Isaiah Berlin's quote, to understand is to perceive patterns. So let's roll that video. To understand is to perceive patterns. Now, of course, what this means is that true comprehension comes when the dots are revealed and you get Stephen Johnson's long view and you see the big picture. This is the idea about patterns, 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 recurring patterns across different scales of reality. You know, Paul Stavitz talks about the mycelial archetype and how the information-sharing systems that comprise the Internet look exactly like computer models of dark matter in the universe, look exactly like the neurons in a brain. They all share the same intertwinkled filamental structure. It's the rise of networkism as big data advocates talk about how 
man-made systems are looking exactly like natural systems. The more we can measure, the more we can visualize, the more we can visualize, the more expands our consciousness by seeing these recurring patterns across scales of reality. It blows my mind, and I think that technology increasingly is becoming uh, uh, an, an expander of human consciousness. It extends our thought, reach, and vision, and revealing so much more. It's like, whereas once I was blind, now I can see. Jeffrey West from the Santa Fe Institute is telling us that cities are really like organisms, you know, alleys are like capillaries. How is it possible that a man-made artificial technological system is behaving like a natural system? The more efficient it becomes, the more it's starting to look like nature. Really interesting, weird stuff. Um, you know, but but it makes me optimistic. It's like when Stephen Johnson says, look, if we can understand all this stuff, we can, I mean, any, anything becomes possible, right? It's the adjacent possible, standing as a sort of shadow future, a map of all the ways the present can reinvent itself. It's, ah, it's beautiful stuff. It is beautiful stuff. Thank you so much, guys. You know... I love, I love Stephen Johnson. His new book, Future Perfect, talks about peer progressives and the power of peer networks to solve problems, which I think is amazing. But that last line about the adjacent possible, I think that's a great takeaway message for us to constantly probe our adjacent possible. I mean, don't you love that? The idea that we shouldn't look upon the world as it is. We should look upon the world and see what it could turn into. It's this shadow future. We should draw the maps of all the ways in which the present can reinvent itself. Now, those videos, when I started doing them, they were a non-commercial experiment. I created a name. I created an art form. I called them Shots of Philosophical Espresso. Really, it was just an excuse to communicate ideas the way that I enjoyed communicating them, which is like with this ecstatic excitement, this attempt to like immortalize and hold in stasis inspiration itself. You know, it's like, I think it's very indicative of this idea that we should not go quietly into the night, but we should rage, rage against dying of the light. If the human, if the purpose of the human machine civilization is to transcend all previous limits and turn into gods, or as Stuart Brand says, we are as gods and might as well get good at it, then I was going to start by not letting those fleeting, exquisite moments of inspiration go to waste, but rather I was going to immortalize them, which is what I love to do, and then share them with people around the world. And they've been seen, you know, over a million moving time, over a million times now. And uh, I think it's indicative that people are hungry for this kind of like high level discourse, but they want it to be compressed. You know, they says this, I don't feel entitled to ask people for their time because I know that we're saturated in media and we have what's called cognitive <laughs> bandwidth anxiety. We just can't process all the information that's coming at us. So that's really the inspiration for this. But what fundamentally at the end of the day, what I want to communicate to you guys is a sense of awe and a sense of wonder. One of my heroes, Carl Sagan was exceptionally good at doing this. Timothy Leary, Bucky Fuller used to call themselves performing philosophers. They take these intergalactic-sized ideas and they use the power of media communication to spread those ideas, to turn them into self-replicating memes that can go out into the world. And this idea of awe as a kind of reassuring quality and ability to contemplate our own existence and marvel at ourselves, as Sophocles says, manifold the wonders, nothing towers more wondrous than man. It's about creating narratives that are positive. It's about awakening the mind's attention from the lethargy of custom and the film of familiarity and redirecting it instead to the wonders of existence because there are an unending amount of wonders. And so I got really turned on when I saw this study out of Stanford that says, guess what? Blowing our minds on a regular basis is actually psychologically beneficial. Every time we push our perceptual boundaries beyond their limits, 
we are reborn and refreshed and reset, and it leaves us with profound benefits. So I thought, that's cool, because if my videos are non-commercial shots of espresso to inspire people with awe, and now awe is actually good for us, why not make a video that informs you with a bit of awe while telling you what awe is and why it matters? So for my last video, which is called The Biological Advantage of Being Awestruck, I am hopeful that it gives you the chills. And you'll notice I speak a lot slower in it because it's a more contemplative piece. And I, uh, <laughs> I hope that it elicits uh, a sense of just cosmic wow. Watch the next video. Eminent psychologist Nicholas Humphrey has written of the biological advantage of being awestruck. How fortuitous, he says, for a species to find that its own ability to contemplate, to marvel at its own existence, has been evolutionarily advantageous. In other words, it has been biologically selected for because it informs our life with a sense of cosmic significance that makes us work harder to persist and to survive. In other words, awe has helped us survive. And you know, a recent study out of Stanford on the subject of awe kind of validates this idea. They have found that regular incidences of awe leave residual benefits upon the individual that persists, such as increased feelings of empathy and compassion towards others, increased feelings of altruism, and increased feelings of general well-being. In this study, they defined awe as an experience of such perceptual expansion, such perceptual vastness that you literally have to reconfigure, upgrade your mental schemata just to accommodate, just to take in the scale of the experience. This is amazing. We've all felt this before. The first time we stared upon the Grand Canyon or succumbed to the immersive power of an IMAX film. But perhaps the most exquisite account of the experience of awe was articulated by the brilliant Ross Anderson when writing about the Hubble Space Telescope. Pay attention. He says that the Hubble has given us nothing less than an ontological awakening, a forceful reckoning of what is, allowing us to contemplate space and time on a scale just shy of infinite. Why? He says gazing upon the famous deep field photograph literally allows us to mainline the whole of time through the optic nerve. To fit something so impossibly large to something so impossibly small. It's incredible. He says through the sheer aesthetic force of its discoveries, the Hubble distills the impossibly complex abstractions of astrophysics into these singular expressions of color and light, vindicating Keith's famous couplet, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. Thank you. Thank you. That's cool. You know, and just even now, like this idea, this, this, this notion that an instrument of man 
a cosmic optic nerve floating in space can distill the abstractions of astrophysics into expressions of color and light. I mean, it just spoke so vividly to me. I'd like to show you, share with you one more quote about just, just think of the telescope as a, as a metaphor for what technology does as an instrument of mind expansion. In its time, and this is by Ross Anderson, in its time, the telescope has transformed the night sky from a decorative ceiling, a fixed sphere of glittering stick-figure gods, into a universe whose reaches carry the seeds of this earth and new earths still. And I'd like to leave you with one more line that puts me in total awe. It's from a website called Next Nature that has been kind enough to feature my work. And they say, they say that design... And this is what's important for artists, really, to pay attention to. Design is about to undergo a paradigm shift. Today, design starts at the level of the atom. We are drifting into the world of the invisible. Virtual realities, nano and biotechnologies are increasingly influencing our aesthetics and providing new construction kits for our reality. And I think the big takeaway here can be echoed by, again, the brilliant Alan Harrington, whose out-of-print work, The Immortalist, I recommend to everyone. Gore Vidal called it the greatest book ever written. He says, we must never forget we are cosmic revolutionaries, not stooges conscripted to advance a natural order that kills everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, we're going to be waiting for some awestruck, awesome, cosmic questions from you. No pressure. Um, We have microphones, uh, two up the back and two down here, um, for if you have a question that you want to ask. Um, I'm just going to start off quickly by asking Jason to tell us how you understand the idea of the singularity. Sure. Um, I get asked this quite a bit because I think people are, even though it's a meme that has picked up steam lately, people get still very nervous about what it implies. But basically, I understand the singularity as a metaphor. And it's a metaphor that was popularized by Ray Kurzweil and before that, Werner Vinge and uh, It's a metaphor borrowed from a physics term, of course, and singularity in physics is when you go through a black hole, and so all the laws of physics, as you know them, are going to be ripped apart. So I think it's a great metaphor to describe this kind of future we can't quite see, this blinding light, and it's like getting too close to the sun, um, that, that is occurring, that is emerging on the back of these exponentially emerging technologies and these overlapping revolutions, right? So you have artificial intelligence, AI, computing. You have biotechnology, which is mastering the information processes of biology. And the nanotechnology, which is manipulating matter at the level of the atoms. That's the last quote that I said. So new construction kits for reality. And the fact that these overlapping revolutions are occurring with a rate of change that is itself accelerating we're moving into a point where the rate of change, we won't even be able to keep up with it until we enhance ourselves with our technologies. Just like today, we wouldn't be able to memorize all the email addresses that we interface with if we didn't have our extended mind, our iPhones. You know, these technologies increasingly are in symbiosis with us, and our only way to kind of 
interface with this emerging future is by furthering that symbiosis with us and our tools. And if you think about the term, you know, the singularity is near. Mm -hmm. You know, what you've talked about is a future that we're really on the cusp of that is approaching at this unknowably fast rate. Yeah. When you're thinking about it, where do you see a point in the future where this really starts to be to happen? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Kevin Kelly in his book, What Technology Wants, says there's been other singularities already. He says the emergence of language was a singularity. To imagine a world of language, that rich inner world that language gave us, the ability to think with purpose and deliberation, to have that rich symbolic inner world, would be inconceivable to the hominids on the other side of that line. The hominids pre-language could not imagine how language was going to change the operating system of the brain. And so similarly, it's impossible for us to envision a world in which we are vastly augmented, in which we can know everything. I mean, we already walk around with access to all the world's knowledge and information in our pockets. But imagine if we were able to download all of it and we have like unlimited expanded RAM in our brains and we wouldn't have the bandwidth anxiety that we currently have because this technology keeps evolving, but we haven't upgraded our brains yet. But when we do, the whole human experience is going to be vastly enlarged. Just like people's experiences are enlarged when they learn a new language, or when they learn a new culture, or when they learn a new instrument. You, it's just an entire new universe through which we, you can unfold. Yeah. Okay, over to you. Hi. Regarding all these mindgasmic potential technical possibilities, is there one in particular that you're really excited about that doesn't exist yet but you hope will? Yeah, I mean, I think even in the short term, I'm really excited about the age of personalized medicine. You know, the fact that genome sequencing is going three times faster than Moore's Law. We're getting better and better understanding what this means and then eventually we'll be able to sort of engineer viruses that can deliver instructions to turn off genes, turn on genes, promote longevity. I'm envisioning pretty soon breakthrough cures to most diseases. I'm envisioning, you know, biotechnology in vitro meat. You'll be able to grow meat from the stem cells of one animal to grow all the meat we could ever need, never have to kill another animal, pump those engineered meats with omega-3s. I'm envisioning an age of abundance, an age of just true abundance. And, uh, you know, particularly just, for example, the um, XPRIZE Foundation has a new tricorder XPRIZE. They're offering $10 million to the first group of technologists who can create a smartphone-sized device who can diagnose you better than 10 board-certified doctors. Lab-on-a-chip technologies, literally. Imagine what that could do in a village in Africa. That kind of stuff I'm really excited about. But even today, Bill Clinton wrote an article in Time magazine called A Case for Optimism. It came out a few days ago. He cited a United Nations study from 2010 that said that the cell phone, which we already have, is one of the greatest inventions in history to pull people out of poverty. He says, forget your thoughts on the digital divides and the info-haves and the info-nots. He says, already, mobile banking in places like Haiti, mobile health, transferring mobile health information on cell phones in Africa, it's already, these technologies are already making a huge difference. But when you have exponential growth, even what seems like a huge difference now is tiny compared to what's coming. And that excites me. Over here. Um, hey, Dom, man. Uh, great How are talk. you? Good. Look, uh, I don't know which philosopher said that the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Um, William Gibson said that, right? I think so. I'm, okay. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, a lot of futurists and technocrats have this uh, very positive view of the future, which is very agreeable on some, on some levels. However, you know, a lot of the world still hasn't got clean water. You know, when we're talking about longevity vaccines or, you know, genetic engineering, yeah. cybernetic manipulation, I doubt these things are going to be available on Medicare, although, although it'd be great. Um, <laughs> It's on our I guess public health insurance. My question really is, 
you know, I'm a bit of a dystopian, with all due respect to everybody here, but, you know, I fear that maybe it's more of a brave new world or Orwellian nightmare that we could be moving into with some of this technology being controlled by some of the most powerful sure. corporations, etc. Um, I think there are economic and political uh, obstructions to, um, to this post-scarcity society, which is a great idea. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think you make a, a fair point, absolutely. I mean, I, at the end of the day, I am an optimist, um, but I think that my optimism is shared by people perhaps uh, better informed even than I am. Like, you know, Bill Clinton writing an article in Time magazine saying a case for optimism and saying, forget about the digital divides and citing the cell phone as one of the greatest inventions in history to pull people out of poverty. I think, you know, technology has always been a double-edged sword. You know, it's often said the guy that discovered fire was probably burned at the stake by his contemporary. <laughs> And uh, as exciting as synthetic biology is, as exciting as biotechnology is to provide relief to those that are suffering from so many illnesses, it can also be used to create some new pathogen that could be unleashed into the world. So I totally acknowledge that. However, you know, and Stephen Johnson talks about this stuff, you know, these technologies sometimes are noisy, sometimes they can be disrupted by certain people that want to keep the status quo and certain entities that want to that don't want their their way of functioning to be disrupted by this stuff but i think ultimately the genie's out of the bottle i think the power of peer networks and people like you guys spreading positive memes and creating sort of narratives that can make you know that can show people what's possible i think ultimately is the only solution to uh to fight against that resistance I think, I mean, there's, a, there's something that comes out of that question, which is about the unequal division. Uh, you know, for example, if something is invented that means that people never need to die, yeah. you can guarantee that there will be a small community, perhaps on the east coast of the United States, of yeah. uh, that will be the first to benefit from that, yeah. and the rest of, you know, the, the, there's yeah. a very unequal distribution of some fair, of Fair enough, things. but e even with that said... Technology at first is expensive, but that's when it doesn't even work very well. And eventually it becomes, on the back of Moore's Law, it becomes much cheaper and much more available to people. I mean, people that don't have running water in Africa have cell phones. Now, granted, it's a problem that they don't have running water. I actually acknowledge, acknowledge that. But um, one of the interesting things uh, that Peter Diamandis likes to say from his book Abundance is that the idea of scarcity is actually contextual and that technology is a resource-liberating mechanism. And if you look, for example, at aluminum, that used to be one of the most precious metals. It was more expensive than gold and silver. You know, you served it to kings. And then electrolysis came along and turned aluminum into a throwaway metal. So, you know, the idea of scarcity is contextual. I mean, you have now a company called Planetary Resources backed by Google that is creating spacecraft to mine asteroids for precious resources. So the idea of scarcity, again... Um, you know, water wars, you know, people worry about. We're fighting for half of 1% of the world's fresh water, but the reality is that this is a water planet. Carl Sagan called it the pale blue dot. So I envision better desalinization technologies. We won't have an issue with water. Solar power, we get 10,000 times more solar energy than we would need to power a city. It's just we need to get better ways of capturing that. But again, all those technologies are evolving at an exponential rate, which means not 100 years from now, guys, you know, much less time than people think. Over here on the, at the back. Um, hello, it's a really interesting topic. Hi. Um, hi. <laughs> Going on from what was just said before, what I sort of noticed about what you were saying was that it didn't seem like a big change to me. It seems like it's more of the status quo just moving faster. So technology is held by the people who can afford it. Um, technology is created by those people with their particular 
point of view and what they want to create. So obviously this biometric and this um, artificial intelligence is going to benefit people to make money and do economics. And the thing that seems to be sidelined is the natural world and natural resources on which we kind of really need. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any sort of consideration of that. I know you talk about making water clean, but how about just not getting it dirty? Um, <laughs> I, I, I find it an odd an odd discussion to say this is change. It, it doesn't seem change. It just seems the same thing. Yeah, well, raincoat. No, I think it's a great question. Absolutely. Totally. And it's interesting because you say, you talk about this distinction again of the natural world versus the man-made world. And part of my whole argument is that we need kind of a shift in our thinking. You know, Bucky Fuller said, start with the universe. Look at Earth as a single system. Everything that we make is made out of atoms. We are of nature. Anything that we make is of nature. And nature has to be a self-correcting system. It tries things out. If it's not good, it has to make amends that can repair whatever doesn't work and make it better. So it's like ultimately evolution is playing out, right? And so if we don't get our act together, if we don't clean the water, if we don't know what we need to do, then we won't succeed. And evolution ultimately doesn't care. I think we're a good experiment because we've, we're self-aware. So we're like this self-directed self evolution that can maybe foresee problems before it tries things out, ultimately. But, you know, it's up to us. It's up to every single one of us and how we use these tools. And when it comes to, you know, it's not just about giving technology to people to make money because, like I said before, a young person in Africa with a cell phone has better communications technology than the U.S. president had 25 years ago. So that person is now joining the global conversation. That's a billion new minds coming online, a billion new minds that can come up with breakthrough solutions to global problems. That's true. So, I mean, that's something to be excited the... about. Like, I don't deny what you're saying. No, 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 but it's true. But it's also can... true that the African person doesn't have the phone number of the American president. No. So, okay, well... <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not exactly equal. All right. Okay. Well, thanks for your question. Over here. Hey mate, um, my question is, how do you think this exponential growth of technology has affected and how it will continue to affect um, humanity's spiritual awareness? Spiritual awareness? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Some people get a little kind of freaked out from this stuff because they think that it's, it contradicts you know, our people's sense of spirituality. But I, I don't think that those things have to be contradictory. I think, at least how I define senses, the sense of spirituality is the sense of the transcendent. And a tra I define transcendence as that which is, sorry, greater than the sum of its parts. And I think, like a work of art, we exceed our materials. I think we are transcendent. I think we transcend our limits. We didn't stay in the caves. We haven't stayed on the planet. We won't stay with the limitations of biology and entropy. I think that everything we do is transcendent. I think we have outsourced our mind and put it on the surface of Mars. With our frontal lobes, we control that machine that explores other planets. I mean, that's the most spiritual thing I can conceive of, you know? Like, that's just me. <laughs> Over here. Hi, Jason. I just How are you? Good, thank you. Um, you spoke of um, bandwidth anxiety, and I've got to say I suffer from that. Me too. Um, along with that, and somewhat following from this question on spirituality, do you think that there's a problem with the ability of our uh, psychology to keep up? So let's say we get the bandwidth, 
Are yeah. we going to be able to well, psychologically fair, cope? Yeah, and I think that our, our psychology is a piece of technology too. It's a piece of intellectual technology that we use to make sense of the human condition. And I think that that's why this conversation is so important because, yes, just because we have the tools doesn't mean we know what's the best way to use these tools. And um, certainly for me, having access to all the world's knowledge and information it enhances my life, but sometimes I have the paralysis of choice, right? Sometimes there's just too much and I'm completely overwhelmed and it's just like, it creates a lot of anxiety and I, and I hope that we have this ongoing dialogue with ourselves and I think that's where the power of story and the power of context and how we see ourselves and how we see these tools is very important. Um, there's an article in the Edge Foundation that's very interesting. It says that uh, technology changes our consciousness, but every time the technology changes our consciousness, we need a new story from which to understand ourselves. Just as when astronauts first saw the Earth from the vantage point of space, that changed everything. That was a phase change. That was a paradigm shift. I mean, seeing the Earth from space, seeing the single thing, changed the story of who and what we are. You know, we all exist inside of these cultural reality tunnels and this consensus trance and culture is our operating system, as McKenna says. And we need to maybe blow our own minds a little bit, let go of the old stories and come up with new stories. And I think that in the, in the face of these disruptive technologies, I think we're in need of new stories. And I think that's where these techno-philosophers are just as important as the engineers that are creating all these wonderful new tools. And that's trying to lend a little bit of that to that conversation through my work. Thanks. Over here. Hey, Jason. Hey. Um, I just had a quick question for you. Um, in the interest of transparency, I'm asking this. Um, what role do you think uh, psychedelic drugs are able to play in people's ability not only to experience awe, but to instill that upon others? Um, and how that relates to your own work? Yeah. Hey, man. i got to be 100% honest. Uh, that quote from Tom Robbins, where I said that we need to pull ourselves out of context in order to gawk in amazement at the wonders of the world. He was talking about psychedelics, but I just think it actually applies to everything we do in life. But he says, it's not that psychedelics manufacture wonderment or that they can automatically make us more imaginative beings, but what psychedelics do is pull us so radically out of our comfort zones. They decondition our thinking. They thrust us out of everything we thought we knew about the world in order to see things as if for the first time and form new synaptic connections. You know, they, 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 they change our context. That's why people take psychedelics and they say, take a trip. Right? Take a trip. Well, look at the physical equivalent of that. Taking a trip means physically go somewhere you've never been before where no one knows your name, see the world differently, and jump into a new culture. Like, I think it has to do with forcing yourself to gain different perspectives on how you see reality. You know, reality is made of language. And so how you map your reality really matters. The words you use to map your reality. And so I think that what psychedelics do is I think they're tools. I think they're tools. That's what I think. Which is very different from just fully advocating their use. I think that they're tools that need to be treated with respect. Um, there was a fascinating article, you know, obviously marijuana is always in the debate and it's on the ballot in three states in the, in the United States, and which I hope it, that, they, that they legalize it. But there was an interesting study in a, in a published in a journal called Psychiatry, I believe, that uh, looked at the phenomenon of creativity, right? And creativity is defined as just connecting things, right? Creative people seem to have this ability to connect the dots between seemingly disparate subjects. And, and then the study looked at marijuana and creativity, and what they looked at was the phenomenon of semantic priming. 
And semantic priming is basically free association. It's like, it's like you activate a word, and then it immediately creates these associative words, these associative ideas. It's like throwing a pebble into a water and seeing the ripple effects. And so let's say you say you have the word bird. Most people think bird, wings, flight. Those are the instant associations. It turns out that people who smoked marijuana and then claimed that it made them more creative, my understanding is that marijuana induced a state of hyperpriming and that it expanded their associative net so that they were able to make more far-reaching connections among things and ideas. And perhaps that's because it dissolved the sort of usual separateness and, ca- and sort of categorizations and de- de- compartmentalized ways in which we store information. I don't know how it works, but it seems to have worked. And so if that's not reason enough for that to be used as a tool, at least for creative people, I don't know what is. You know, been, there's a great uh, book called What the Dormouse Said, written by John Markoff, that chronicles the history of the personal computer and the collision of Silicon Valley and the counterculture movement in the 60s and 70s. Xerox Park, Douglas Engelbart was trying to augment human intelligence by any means necessary. They were giving LSD to all the engineers and then having them work on problems that they had been stuck with for six months. And they had unbelievable breakthroughs, unbelievable breakthroughs. In fact, there's an article that says that Google... What about the breakdowns? Well, well, that's that's why the environment is so important, right? But there's an interesting article that says that Google is the first psychedelically informed superpower and that the whole vision of interconnectivity and interconductivity and we are all one is being literalized by a company like Google, by the World Wide Web. The Internet literalizes the psychedelic vision that we are all one because now we are all synapses in a global brain. And that's a totally out there idea, but definitely worth talking about. Well, <laughs> Jason, it's been fascinating following you. I have a schizophrenic sister, so I can actually keep up with you, and I mean that in the (laughs) nicest way. No, that's very interesting you say that, because isn't there a very thin line between schizotypy and schizophrenic? Absolutely. Creativity and madness always go hand in hand, right? As uh, Joseph Campbell says, the the madman and the mystic are in the same waters, but the madman is drowning and the mystic is swimming. Absolutely. And um, as a woman representing half of the world, I'd like to say that um, I actually think men, men's enlightenment and women is a, is a sort of different aspiration. For most of us that work with uh, children and humanitarian things around the world, uh, consciousness and conscience is important. So I'm actually fascinated looking at the use of technology with someone like Ai Weiwei in China using Twitter. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant case. But when I look at the actual state of the world, and I work with the Tibetans, um, and of course 53 of those set fire to themselves in the last year and a half and hardly anyone noticed. When I actually look at something, an issue like that, that sits for 50 years on the heart of the world, and I see Australia doing business with... um, basically a government that's killed 10 holocausts of people since World War II, I look at how technology is really benefiting the people who actually need us to feel and have a conscience and have morality. Mm. And I wonder how we can use this brilliance, these tools, to affect real change, yeah. real change, the change that needs to happen in the world. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, a lot of those issues that you raise have more to do with politics than with technology. And I think politics is an obsolete technology in a lot of ways. Um, But uh, I'm very excited by a lot of the ideas put out there by people like Clay Shirky and Stephen Johnson. Clay Shirky wrote Cognitive Surplus, Stephen Johnson's new book, Future Perfect. And again, it's the power of 
these um, peer networks. And he says that this new kind of citizen that's not a Republican or a Democrat, but a peer progressive who understands the power of peer networks to solve problems. And again, he says, look, it's not perfect. It's not utopia, but it's heading in that direction. So let's hope he's right. Yes, and as a woman's point of view, we don't want torture and barbarity in the 21st century. We actually want children to have health and water and so forth. And I'm just wondering how we can use this complex technology for simple solutions. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Well, just to quickly answer that, there's a university that was created in Silicon Valley called Singularity University. It's backed by NASA and Google, and they're teaching students. This is the main message in this school. What idea can you come up with that can help a billion people? And the whole exponential thinking ethos is that these exponential technologies allow small groups of passionate people to affect the kind of change that only governments and huge corporations used to be able to change. So that's like the whole thing. What can you do to change the lives of a billion people? The challenge is in all of us. It's for all of us now. I noticed this week as part of the lead-up to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, we actually had the uh, parliamentary hearings with the Joint Committee of Intelligence and Security uh, in Sydney, where we have the the situation where our politicians, our um, intelligence agencies and police are calling for a massive database to be created which tracks all of our internet and telecoms activity online for up to two years continuously. And that's a rather big set of data. I was wondering if you had any ideas about that. Um, if I'm concerned that they're going to be storing two years of data, is that what's that? Yes, yes. Uh, showing all the metadata. Yeah, well, again, I just done. I don't know if they're sitting around. I don't think there's anybody behind the curtain. I don't know if there's somebody sitting around and saying, I know everything I need to know about Jason so that I can predict. I just think they're, you know, we're becoming these huge swaths of data, and all of us are just a little algorithm in a vastly bigger database. And I think that I think our slight discomfort is more psychological. I don't think there's anybody trying to, like, hurt us here. I just think it's like... Humanity learning about itself, like in the long view, I just think the organism is, is, is sort of reverse engineering itself and figuring out what its own motivations are. And I see it part of the ongoing awakening of, of, of us as like the universe trying to know itself. Like I, it just, it, that's just my utopian view on it, but I just, I just don't believe in conspiracy theories, you know? Okay. We've got uh, one minute left on the clock. We've gone a little past our hour, so if there is anybody who needs to dash out because it's four o'clock... Do go, but we're going to take one more question. Thank you so much. And if you want to continue the conversation online, guys, I'm at Jason Silva on Twitter, and we can keep talking. Thank you. I just want to say, woo! (laughs) Amazing talk, mate. Thanks, Um, man. I just, you know, you you brought up something earlier in in your talk um, saying that impermanence scares you. Yeah. Wouldn't you say, or I would say anyway, its opposite is equally scary? And is it a good matter of perception? Uh, yeah, no, that, good question. Just this idea of impermanence, is, are we actually impermanent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's interesting because I say impermanence scares me, but some people say impermanence is what gives us an urgency to try to do great things in the world in the limited amount of time that we're here. But, like, man, the universe is infinite. Why do we have to be so brief? And, you know, life expectancy used to be 40 years. Now we're pushing 80. Ask the, uh, the average 55-year-old healthy person who's enjoying life with his kids. and doesn't. I mean, ask him how they would feel if they would have had to die 15 years before. You know, people say death is what gives meaning to life. I disagree. 
agree. I think we've ennobled death in the face of no other option. We're smart, you know? But I think it's not death that gives meaning to life. I think it's life that gives meaning to life. And to somehow ennoble a brute biological horror that robs us of everything and everyone we care about is just self-deceitful. Like, I don't know. Like I, I could never be at peace with losing those that I love. I just, I think we have to stand up against that an indifferent universe that would allow that. And if we are the frontal lobes of the universe, then we can change the rules. No more perfect uh, uh, ending, I think, for a session like this. Um, For those of you who want to see more of Jason, next year he's uh, hosting a program for National Geographic on the brain called Brain Games. He will be out in the foyer um, near the signing table if you want to continue the conversation and, as he suggested, also on Twitter. Um, There are a couple of sessions downstairs that you can still grab a ticket for if you need more, Uh, one on Afghanistan, I know, um, and possibly a couple of the others. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, guys. You guys rock. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.